Hi there, this is Pastor Aaron of Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church, and we pray that through the preaching of God's Word that you were encouraged and pointed to Christ, our glorious Savior. If you have any questions or comments, uh, you can find us at www.fairviewcornerstone.com, and uh, please write to us. We'd love to uh, hear any questions or comments. We pray the Lord encourage you through this sermon. of Luke will be in chapter 3. We'll start uh, reading at verse 1. So if you can once again please stand with me as we read from the Word of God together. Luke chapter one, uh, sorry, Luke chapter three, verse one, and we'll read down um, to twenty. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonus, and and Lysanus. Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas, I'm sorry, forgive me, um, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make, path, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, And for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Let's just ask the Lord's help as we 
look at his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, uh, knowing that just as the plants and the earth require water that they might grow and sun, that they might uh, bud forth and produce fruit, Lord, we know that we need your word. We We are dependent upon your spirit to breathe life, to give understanding, to open blind eyes, to to clear ears that are blocked, to bring hearts of stone to become hearts of flesh. Father, only you can accomplish these things. And so we ask you to work on our behalf, uh, even now as we look at your word. Guide me and my words that they would be um, in accordance with your scriptures, that they would be for the building up of your people, for the exposing of our sin, God. Would you be honored now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I said we're going to try last year, and then I forgot before we sat down, but we'll try it again anyways. Um, So I will say, the grass withers, the flower fades, and you will respond back, but the word of our God stands forever. So we'll try it, and we'll keep practicing this, and we'll uh, get better and better each week. So, the grass withers, and the flower fades. Amen. Thank you. So as we uh, think about our passage this morning... Uh, I don't know if, I imagine all of us at different times have wondered what it would have been like to sit on the banks of the Jordan River, to, to be there in the first century in, in Palestine or in the region of Jerusalem and to hear these prophets speak and to hear Christ's word go forth. And even as sometimes wondering what that would have been like, I was reminded that we have the very words they spoke recorded for us. God, in his grace, has preserved for us the words of these prophets and the words of his son that we might hear them and respond. And, And so this morning, we're going to hear the voice crying in the wilderness. We're going to hear John preparing the way for Christ. And it's amazing to think that even though John has been dead for over 2,000 years, that his message still sounds throughout the centuries, preparing the way for Christ to be received. And so I, I pray that we would uh, hear the words of John, that Christ might be received afresh by us as glorious and precious this morning. And uh, You'll remember we, we already looked a few weeks ago at the context in which John came um, a real place, a real time in history, probably around 18 AD, somewhere in there. And John would have been about 30 years old at this point. We know that because later Luke tells us that Christ uh, was around the age of 30 and they were only about six months apart. And so John is a young man after being in the wilderness, steps forward. And we looked also last time Um, at this glorious verse that we can often miss, and that is, we're told that the word of God came to John. And uh, we looked a bit about what that means, that the word of God came to John. um, And as a result, he began his public ministry. And that was in verse 3. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah. And so what we're going to see this morning is the, the message of John, the, the outflow of that word coming to John. Uh, if you think of it like a, a, a waterfall of God's truth and grace being poured out into John the Baptist, and as a result of him being 
Given the word of God, given this divine truth, John begins to overflow to all of those around him. This is not a message that John initiated on his own uh, you know, need for, for political change or for moral revolution. John is receiving the word of God and then he is delivering the word of God. And that's so important that you see that with these men. Um, this is not a Joseph Smith scenario where he's wandering in the forest and claims he had this word. Rather, this is God initiating a word to John and then John overflowing to those around him. And this is a key component of what it means to be a prophet of God in this sense of speaking divine authority. Um, I do not stand here with this kind of authority in and of myself. My authority is in the scriptures. It is as I proclaim to you this word that God's already given us um, that we have any authority. So, as we look at this, there's five key components I want us to look at of John's message. I don't think we'll get through all of them today, um, hopefully at least the first two, but uh, five components of John's message that he preaches in the, the Jordan region. First of all, the first component of John's message is that he would expose hypocrites. He exposes hypocrites. First of all, we're going to see that John also calls for repentance. He calls for repentance. And then we're going to uh, continue to move um, to the various components. But let's start, first of all, with this exposing of the hypocrites. And we see that, that he is coming um, with the prophetic fulfillment from Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, preparing the way for Christ, preparing that all flesh should see the salvation of God, quoting from Isaiah 40. And then John opens his mouth, and you could just imagine the, the, the impact of this moment in Israel. Years of silence, and now the word of God has again come to his prophets, and John opens his mouth, and the first thing we see is an exposing of hypocrites. And he turns to the men there, and he says to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Now, Luke doesn't tell us specifically who it is that uh, John is talking to right here, but if you flip back just for a moment to Matthew, Matthew does give us a little bit more detail as to what, uh, who John is, is talking to, Matthew chapter 3. Now, sometimes we want to be a little careful in going through all the Gospels because Luke is writing with a specific perspective and intention uh, than Matthew, um, but it, it does help to sometimes fill in some pieces as you compare their, their uh, testimony. But in John 3 and um, verse 7, we're told by Matthew that it is indeed the group of Pharisees. He says, but when, we, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come and uh, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So the exact same words of John are recorded by Matthew, and Matthew tells us that he is speaking directly to the Pharisees and to the Sadducees in this uh, initial uh, component of his message. Now, I know for us, um, we think about this group of, of people, and, you know, I think we, we sometimes 
can portray them as though they maybe looked a little bit like, like Darth Vader or something, and they breathed you know, really terribly through their nose, and, and they just went around in dark cloaks looking very evil and very uh, disrespected. But remember who these people are in the first century that John is exposing as hypocrites. These are the religious leaders of the first century. These are those who people looked up to. These are those who, who were teachers of the word of God. They were uh, exemplary in keeping the law externally. They were the ones people would look to and say, wow, that, that is a righteous person. That is a godly person right there. And yet John exposes them as hypocrites. These are the people that you would have went to for prayer and for advice. They would have taught in the synagogues. They would have prayed the longest prayers at prayer meetings. They would have sang the loudest at corporate worship. These are the people that in the first century were seen as as God's representatives on the earth. They were leaders, respected. And yet John has the, the courage to look at them and call them a brood of vipers. It's a shocking message when you understand who these people are and what they represent and, and what their role was in Israel. Now, this isn't unique to John. In fact, uh, we, we typically associate this kind of preaching with Christ. We know that Jesus... Uh, preached the same message as John in exposing these religious leaders of the day as, as uh, hypocrites. In Matthew twelve thirty four, Jesus, using the same imagery that John used, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And Jesus later would call them serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? In Matthew twenty three thirty three. So Jesus continued preaching the same gospel message that John preached of repentance, of exposing those who go through the exterior motions but inwardly are full of dead man's bones, Jesus would say. And it's important to understand what the, the problem is. What is the problem with these men? Why is John using this kind of language um, in reference to these religious leaders. From the outside, looking in, there would seem that there was nothing wrong with them. In fact, they would be, they would be the, the leaders. They would be those who should be respected. But we find, especially later in the, in the ministry of Christ, as he unpacks this more uh, in relationship to these men, in Matthew 23, 25, for example, Jesus would say to them, Woe to you, Scribes and Pharisees says, For you tithe, this is 23, 23, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy, faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out gnats and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgences. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness." 
so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So the problem with this group of, of religious leaders, it's not that they are trying to obey the law or that they're praying or that they're tithing or that they're doing global missions, but rather that everything that they're doing does not flow from a heart that has been transformed by the grace of God. It is merely external. It is a going through the motions with no internal love, no desire for righteousness, no love for God, for his word, for his people. It is all external. And this is why John is preaching to them and calling them to repent and to seek God in repentance. Now, we always assume, and I'm guilty of this, we read a passage like this, and of course we're going to put ourselves in the narrative as, as probably, you know, either Peter or, or maybe John, someone who's, who's right there next to Jesus, right there in his inner circle of friends, his, 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 someone he would, he would talk to for, for encouragement or counsel or someone he would ask to pray with, with him. We put ourselves there, don't we? But if we're honest... We would, we would need to examine our own hearts and say, am I standing there among the Pharisees who have mastered an external kind of religion that is inwardly dead? And we need to ask this hard question of ourselves because it is this group that I believe will face the greatest extent of God's fury on Judgment Day. Those who have gone through the motions making others suppose they actually love God, but inwardly there is no life. Don't distance yourself immediately from this accusation, but come before God and say, Lord, am I guilty of this? Expose in me a a hypocritical spirit, a heart that wants others to see what I do, but really have no love for you in my heart. Ask God to expose that in you, and he will. And yes, it's painful, but like surgery at times is needed. If we are not willing to lay down under the scalpel of the surgeon, we will not experience the healing that he brings. We need to humble ourselves and allow God to expose this kind of, 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 of hypocrisy within us. We need to stop pleading our own defense before God, justifying ourselves, and rather allow the Spirit to expose us. And we might be horrified at what He shows us, but it is a repentance leading to life. That is the beauty of, of God's conviction, that when we have these kinds of hard words come to us, if we will listen, we will be healed, we will be restored. The devil condemns unto death. He condemns you as, as worthless, as a failure, as there's no hope. That is, that is a demonic kind of conviction. The Spirit of God says you are, you are a sinner, you are a hypocrite, you, are, you have broken the law of God. However, Christ offers you life, forgiveness, renewal. Flee to Christ. That is the work of God's Spirit. And so do not flee from it. What are these examples of hypocrisy that we might see in ourselves today? And I can just 
I can just give you some from my own life. I'm telling you that I struggle with hypocrisy. In fact, people will say, well, I'm not going to church. It's just full of hypocrites. And uh, I think it was John MacArthur made the statement that, well, just tell them that there's always room for one more. Someone tells you the church is full of hypocrites. You're right. But guess what? Well, there's room for another one if you want to come and join us at the foot of the cross, receiving the grace that we do not deserve. Um, We are guilty, and yet we have a glorious Savior. So maybe you're like me, and you catch yourself sometimes reading your Bible so that you can check it off of your daily to-do list. Or I have uh, on my phone, it's um, the Version Bible app, and you can create reading plans, which is very helpful, um, trying to go through the chronological reading plan so you read the Bible in its uh, you know, order according to, to date. And it's good, but sometimes I'll find myself... You know, you have the daily reading for you. You just push the button and it says, you know, read this chapter, this chapter, this chapter. And so you push it and you start reading. And, and sometimes I'll stop and they'll be like, you know what, I'm, I'm reading this? So that I get the little check mark at the end and it tells me, finish daily reading. That is hypocrisy. It is, it is a going through the motions and forgetting that as we come to the Scripture, there should be this hungering to know who God is, to, to, to experience His grace, to have my own soul nourished. Do we come to the Word of God in that way? Singing songs that we, we, really, have, we really don't feel anything in our heart. And I know we don't make it about feelings, but... But at the same time, there should be, as we sing, this constant plea within our heart, Lord, make this a reality in my life. Don't just go through the motions of singing the words because we know that's what's expected of us, but ask God to enable you to sing from a heart of love. A.W. Tozer said, and this one, every time I hear this quote, it just feels like it just jabs you, you know, but it's, it's good. He said that, Christians don't tell lies, they just sing them on Sunday morning. It was A.W. Tozer. That hurts. Like, I feel the pain of that because I sometimes will sing, you know, amazing love, how can it be? And yet in my heart, I'm, I'm, my, my mind is struggling to not wander from this thing or that thing. That is hypocrisy. It is this heart that will go through the motions with no love of God. And, and, and when you find that within you, repent and plead with God to give you a heart of flesh, to give you a heart that worships Him. And, and he is faithful to do that. Maybe in our tithing, uh, we give so that we feel better about ourselves. I catch myself doing that. It's like, oh, I, I, I want to tithe. I, I want to feel better about myself. And it's right that we should desire to give and to be supporting the, the advancing of God's kingdom. But ultimately, it should be an act of worship unto God. God, you have given me much. I give back to you out of worship not so that others might see, not so that I can check it off of my monthly to-do list. Do not be a hypocrite in your giving. Even in something as special as as family worship, um, I know that I need to be as a father leading my family in prayer in those scriptures, and sometimes we'll sit down together, and and after much wrestling and and, uh, (laughs) bathroom breaks and this and that, we get together in the living room, and we're going to read the Bible, we're going to sing a few songs, and I'm so frustrated by that point that I'll go ahead and do it, but it's from a heart of, of just, let's just get this done so the kids can go to bed and there can be some, and some peace and quiet for a moment. I don't know if your parents feel like that sometimes. You just want quiet for a few moments, and yet I catch myself neglecting those times because of this heart of hypocrisy that will go through the motions. 
And I ask you to continue to pray for me, pray for the elders of this church, because it terrifies me that when John preaches this hard word, he is talking specifically to the religious leaders of the day. And for me, as, as one who has been given the opportunity to stand here and speak the word of God and to, to try to, uh, by God's grace, walk with the elders and shepherding this body, I am especially vulnerable to going through the motions because I know Sunday morning I need to be here, I need to have something to say. And, and, and so there's this temptation to just go through the motions. But oh, how God despises that kind of Christianity that is inwardly dead. Let us repent of it and, and admit it. Don't, don't pretend that, oh, I don't struggle with that. That's not something I, I deal with. Then you've already deceived yourself if you are not aware of this temptation in your heart. Repent, as John said. And so that's the first component of his message is this exposing of hypocrites and calling them to the second component we'll look at together which is John calls the people to repent. The second component of John's message is that we repent of our sins. We tend to think of repentance as the initial step, um, and rightly so, of, of becoming a Christian. But I think that it goes beyond just a one-time acknowledgement of my falling short of God's law, a one-time confession before God. There is this continual, as John said, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. This continual fruit of repentance coming out of the Christian's life. But we think of even initially, this was his baptism. It was a baptism, we're told, of repentance. Charles Spurgeon said that faith and repentance are born together, live together, and thrive together. Let no man put asunder what God has joined together. The ongoing work in the Christian's life of repentance and faith, repentance and faith, this is a lifelong pursuit. And so the question is, well, what is repentance? What does it mean that we would repent, that we would bear fruit in in keeping with repentance? And I'll quote Spurgeon one more time. He said, Repentance is a hatred of sin. It is a turning from sin and a determination in the strength of God to forsake it. Repentance is a hatred of sin and a forsaking it. This is what John is calling them to do, this, this picture of that which you once pursued, that which, which you once gave yourself over to. You stop. You stop giving yourself to that sin, and you turn, and you seek Christ. You pursue Christ where you once pursued darkness, evil, hypocrisy. Those things are put to death, and you now seek Christ as your new master, no longer a master to, uh, of sin by sin. This is biblical repentance. It's not merely a acknowledging that you've been caught or that you are wrong. It's not even acknowledging only that God says it is wrong, but it is when from within the depths of your heart you realize what you have done before a holy God and you begin to hate 
what you once loved, and that hatred drives you from it, and you begin to pursue Christ who you now love. That is biblical repentance, and it is the fruit of a Christian. It is the initial fruit, it is the ongoing fruit, and it is something we continue to produce by the Spirit of God. Now, no one has to tell you this, but of course in our day there is a tendency to, to de-emphasize this call of repentance. If someone comes seeking to be saved, we're generally taught to just affirm God's love for them, to just tell them the wonderful plans that God has for their life, to lead them in a prayer and pronounce them saved. And we can so, we can so quickly pass over this call of the prophets, of John, of Jesus, to repent of our sin, to stop, to hate that which we once loved, and to love Christ. This is the gospel message preached by John, preached by Christ, preached by Paul, preached by Peter. It is this command to the sinner to stop sinning, and turn and seek Christ and be healed by faith through his grace. Um, this is really key throughout the passage. You, you notice that um, he's going to, I don't think we'll get there today, but the, the third component is that he warns Israel of their unbelief and the coming judgment. But even in the picture of the tree that John gives, um, that every, the axe is laid to the root of the trees, he says in verse 9, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In the context, John, uh, what John is saying, the good fruit, I believe, would be primarily repentance. Yes, we could talk about uh, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, faithfulness, all of these things are good, but I think what John has specifically in mind here, the fruit of the tree that God is, is pleased um, to to identify as his own uh, is repentance, this fruit of God's Spirit within us. Um, I'm going to flip just for a moment to 2 Timothy because when you begin to understand not only what repentance is, but also how it happens, it can actually be very liberating in your Christian life. And I didn't understand this for many years. And as I began to understand what repentance is and where it comes from, it can actually transform the way that you begin to deal with your sin um, in your own life. First, uh, 2 Timothy 2, and this is Paul giving instruction to young Timothy as he's pastoring at Ephesus. And um, especially, he gives him here uh, in verse 22, we'll start, 2 Timothy 2.22. He says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Now listen to what he says about about these people who are, are quarreling with Timothy. He says, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. 
I read that for years and did not understand what it is that, that Paul is saying. He is actually telling Timothy the, the way that he can be patient, the way that he can be long-suffering with, with those who are quarreling, with those who are causing problems in the body of Christ, is that he understands that it is God who grants them repentance, the ability to even see what they're doing, because they have been captured by the devil to do his will. When you begin to understand that there is a, a spiritual reality, a, a, a spiritual um, um, darkness that is holding people captive to sin. Yes, we are sinful in our nature. Um, according to the, the line of Adam, that we sin apart from the devil, all on our own. But there is also this blinding of the devil, a demonic inability to see your own sin. And the only way that we can even see our sin rightly before God is that God grant us repentance so a lot of times, if I am struggling with something, um, you know, if it's anger with my children, if it's, if it's lust, if it's pride, if it's coveting, one of the first things I begin to do is, God, I don't feel any remorse for this. In fact, in my flesh, I'm quite enjoying it. Can you please give me repentance by your Spirit? Enable me to even... Believe that this is sinful. Grant me repentance that I might turn from it. And how many times the Lord will, will bring upon your soul a, a weightiness, a fear of Him in your heart where you begin to see your sin rightly, that you repent and that you turn. And, and this, this changes the way you, you share the gospel. It changes the way you share, uh, you pray for your family and your friends. If you have someone who is living in sin, yes, you bring the gospel to them. Yes, you, you hold up the standard of God's law to them. But you fervently pray, God, please grant them repentance that they might see what's happening. They are, they are under a demonic hold and they don't even know it. Please, Lord, Enable them to repent. And then when you see people being transformed by the, the power of the gospel, you know that God is in your midst. God is working and bringing about this work that is impossible in our flesh. We need the Spirit of God. And so pray and ask Him to enable you um, in this fruitfulness, this this work of His Spirit that He does within us. Pray for one another. Pray that God enable me to repent daily of my sin. Pray for your children that the Spirit of God would, would cause them to see themselves rightly before who He is. John brought a message of repentance. And as I said, uh, this is not unique to John. This is right through Genesis to Revelation, this call for people to turn from their sin. I thought of Jonah, um, and he was a preacher uh, to um, the Ninevites. And do any of you children remember what happened to Jonah in the Bible? He was swallowed by a great fish, wasn't he? Because he didn't want to go preach to the heathens, to those who did not love God. But as he went in Jonah 3.9, we see an amazing thing happen that actually angered Jonah. The king 
was cut to the heart after only probably one of the shortest messages in the history of preachers is preached by Jonah in Nineveh. Just a simple call to repent or else God is going to bring judgment and they clothe themselves in, in sackcloth and ashes. He calls a citywide fast and they humble themselves before God and you have this amazing statement that the disaster that God intended to bring upon them, he relented because of their repentance. So the prophets of old preached this gospel of repentance. And Jesus, we're told in Matthew 4.17, would come and he would say, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's not a comforting word to our souls. We don't want to be told we're wrong. We don't want to be told that we're going to face judgment if we continue on our course. But at the same time, this is actually a loving word from John. The fact that he would call them to repentance is a demonstration of his love. If you could imagine somebody in a, in a burning house and maybe they, have you seen these new uh, game systems, virtual reality or something, you wear this headset and, and uh, I guess it's supposed to, be, I haven't tried one, but maybe I will one day, I don't know. And it's supposed to be like you're in the game. It's not just watching a game, but you're in the game. And so uh, think about someone maybe playing one of these virtual headsets in a burning house. And that is kind of what we're, we're, we're seeking to, to do as Christians. We are proclaiming a message that condemnation is coming, that judgment is about to fall, and that people need to turn from their sin and seek Christ while he may be found. But they don't believe you because they don't, they don't see it. They don't, their senses aren't picking up the reality of what's happening. They are, they are enamored with this device on their head. And so we continue to plead, we continue to pray, and we do not forsake them in the house. And this is our call as Christians, that we would call people to repent, knowing that they're going to be angry and upset. But being faithful to the gospel, this is what we must do. Many will try to tell you that the Evidence of the Spirit in the Christian's life is primarily the gift of tongues or some prophetic word of knowledge. And while the Lord does gift each believer with gifts, the, one of the universal fruits of the Spirit working in your life is this fruit of repentance. And so I'm asking you, when was the last time you, God alone, you got on your face before God and you repented of your sin. You confessed your sin before God and you asked him to forgive you. You asked him to enable you by his spirit to change, to, to actually give you a hatred in your heart for that which you once loved or maybe that which you love right now. Some of you are or addicted to pornography, or addicted to various substances, or addicted to gossip, and you need to stop, you need to repent, you need to turn from those things and pursue Christ, the Savior of all. And this is an ongoing reality that we must do. So, in closing, I um, have this little booklet of Puritan prayers and called the Valley of Vision. 
I came across this prayer this week, so I thought I would read it for you. It's titled, Continual Repentance. It says, Thou hast imputed my sin to my substitute, and hast imputed his righteousness to my soul, clothing me with a bridegroom's robe, decking me with jewels of holiness, But in my Christian walk, I am still in rags. My best prayers are stained with sin. My repentant tears are so much impurity. My confessions of wrong are so many aggravations of sin. My receiving the Spirit is polluted with selfishness. I need to repent of my repentance. I need my tears to be washed. I have no robe to bring to cover my sins, no loom to weave my own righteousness. I'm always standing clothed in filthy garments, and by grace am always receiving change of raiment. For thou dost always justify the ungodly. I am always going into the far country and always returning home as a prodigal, always saying, Father, forgive me, and thou art always bringing forth the best robe. Every morning let me wear it, every evening return in it, Be wound in death in it. Stand before the great white throne in it. Enter heaven in its shining as the sun. Grant me never to lose sight of the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the exceeding righteousness of salvation, the exceeding glory of Christ, the exceeding beauty of holiness, the exceeding wonder of grace. And so, as we repent, we also join with the hymn writer who said, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I wonder if we could sing that chorus together. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. May that be our song. Let us close with a word of prayer, and I plead with you to seek the Lord. Turn from your sin. And be washed in the blood of Christ. Let us pray. And then we will have our ushers come forward, our closing song. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is gracious and slow to anger, that you are abounding in steadfast love. Lord, that you are willing to wipe away our iniquities from us if we will but turn and place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he came and died, that by the power of your spirit he was raised from the dead as a declaration of his victory over sin and of our great hope that we have in Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would rescue many from the the bondage of darkness, that you would give us courage and boldness, Lord, to seek you and to stand upon the truth. We thank you for the testimony of John pointing us to Christ exposing our sin, exposing our hypocrisy. Lord, help us by your Spirit to walk 
in spirit and in truth. Thank you for this church family. We pray that you would be pleased to use us in this town, in this land, in this country, globally, Lord, to declare the hope that Jesus brings. And we ask all this in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Well, thank you for tuning in today to the sermon uh, preached at Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church. And again, if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at church at fairviewcornerstone.com. God bless. God bless.